to another episode of Money You Should Ask, where everyone has something they can teach you. I'm your host, Bob Wheeler, and in this episode, we're going to explore, question, examine, converse, dig deep, expose, laugh, and cry about the money beliefs, money blocks, and life challenges of our next guest. Turn up the volume, listen, learn, and laugh. Our next guest is Matthew Sullivan. He's the CEO and founder of Quantum RE, a company that helps homeowners access a portion of their home equity without taking on more debt. I like it. Matthew and his team have developed, have helped over 100 homeowners use their home equity to pay off expensive credit cards, remodel their home, pay college tuition fees, or to diversify into other investments, all without taking on extra debt. Matthew has a proven track record in real estate innovation. Originally from London, Matthew worked with Richard Bronson's corporate finance team and was a director of the Virgin-sponsored London Air Ambulance. A helicopter pilot himself, he is also the host of his own podcast, Hooked on Startups. Matthew, it's so great to have you here today. Thank you, Bob. Thanks for having me on. You've got a big resume. You've done a lot of things. I was going to say, that's, 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 that's not my resume. It's, it's, it's funny, actually, looking back, when you were saying things like that, I was thinking, God, yeah. Yeah, that was, that was quite a while ago. But it's funny, you know, as you, as you continually sort of march forward, you sort of forget about the things that you've done in the past. So it's, <laughs> yeah, it's, I think I must have peaked early. There you go. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. It's all downhill from here, right? Exactly. No, it's yes. all it's all up. It's all up. Well, let me ask you this. Um you seem um and I can appreciate this. Uh you seem like somebody that uh gets bored easy. So you got lots of different projects going on or you're always moving on to the next thing. Well, it's no, actually funny enough. It's the opposite because um the you know, the important thing is really uh, there's a lot of stuff I get quite, you know, interested in. So I like doing lots of things. Um but uh, I don't. I don't think I get bored easily, um, and I think that's um, you know. I just I love throwing myself into stuff, um, and the problem is I just acquire um, you know hobbies and uh, you know pursuits and passions and things. Most of the stuff I like doing as a hobby tends to involve gear, so you know things like diving and flying and stuff, you know, anything to do with gear is always, is always, uh, you know, really interesting. And to me, when you talk about gear and diving and flying, what I hear is death. <laughs> well, yes. I mean, that is one of the, that is one unfortunate consequence. If, if, uh, you know, you know, gravity normally wins actually. And, um, yes. And, and, you know, hard landings do sometimes involve uh, a fair amount of paperwork afterwards, but, uh, no, so far, so good, as they say. So far, so good. So let me ask you this. Did you have siblings growing up? Um, what was it like in the Sullivan household? Uh, well, yeah, I have two sisters. Um, so one is four years younger and one is 14 years younger. Um, wow. So, you know, being the older brother, I was actually sort of, uh, I went off to boarding school when I was about 12, um, which was actually brilliant fun because then I could, you know, um, you know, get away from, uh, uh, you know, being surrounded by uh, sort of sisters and things, um, but no, I mean the household. I was I was brought up in southeast of London. Um, my my father was um, the managing director of one of the uh, very early merchant banks, uh, manufacturers Hanover, um, and so you know I went to a great school. I went to Westminster School in London, so I was out walking around 
Westminster Abbey in the mornings complaining, for goodness sake, complaining <laughs> that, that every morning we had to go into Westminster Abbey to sort of do our morning prayers, you know, and now it's like, what, what was, what's wrong with you? I would sort of kill to go back and do that. So no, I had a perspective. Had a, <laughs> yeah, it is, it is, you know, it is, it's all these things. They say youth is wasted on the young, but no, I had a, I had a great, uh, it, it was, um, uh, you know, my, my only regret is that I, I didn't learn to ride a bicycle until I was about nine. So I think I've, ah. I've put, you know, I've, I've fixed that with my current children. They're all, they're all learning at uh, the they're age of five, four, months, four months. Yeah. That's good. That's a good, that's a good age to start. Now, did you, did your parents talk about money? Your dad worked in banking or worked for a bank, uh, merchant bank. Did you have an allowance? Did you talk about money? What, what's the British, uh, way or the british way in your household well it's funny because there was never any i mean thinking about it it's one of those things that you looking back you think well there was never any education about money money was you know um i think my father used to refer to it as um you know son money is useful stuff you should get some and i think that was sort of as far as it got so there was never really any education about money and how it works and what you should do with it and how you should save it. And, uh, you, you know, so I think a lot of it is, um, certainly my background, it was, you sort of feel your way. It was a given, you know, money is there. You sort of figure it out for yourself. Once you got out of college, were your parents like, have fun? Uh, we're locking the door, figure it out. Did they help you? Uh, what were the struggles when you had to get out in the real world as you're technically on your own well well first of all they moved house without telling me where they'd moved to um which which i thought was a little unfair um it's unfair and that was the beginnings of an indication of their attitude towards how i should carry on in life no but really it was a case of look you know i after i left university as it was then um i was about 21 i went straight into a job and i actually stayed in birmingham so uh i bought a house um i think i left i left university when i was 21 got a job immediately with pitney bows and these are the guys that sold uh franking machines uh photocopiers and fax machines. Okay. So my first job, Uh-oh. um, I was, you know, and this, this newfangled device called a fax machine had just been invented. So, uh, I, I had to go out and sell franking machines, which basically, um, stop you from having to lick stamps and put them on envelopes. And, um, the, the big challenge there was a fax machine. Cause I would go and see people and explain how a fax machine worked. And they would say, but who am I going to fax? No one I know has a fax machine. <laughs> so it was one of this sort of chicken and egg situation. It's a great idea, right. but no, you know, it's completely pointless. So until everyone has a fax machine, um, it, it's as useful as a, you know, chocolate fire guard. Um, so that, that exactly. was a, a, a bit of a challenge. Um, and then I moved on and then I started working for an insurance company and uh, worked there for a couple of years. Um, so I, I never really wanted to go back home. So, so the idea of going back really wasn't on the list. And I wanted to, you know, I had my own house. Um, I bought my Opal Manta GTE and, and for, um, I, th- I don't think anyone has any idea what that is. Um, but it was a really super car. It was like this sort of two liter sports car. Um, so that was my, you know, first car. So I would drive around this sort of 21 year old in this bright red, uh, super duper sports car that absolutely couldn't afford. Uh, but that really just didn't matter. Um, so no, my, you know, 
the early years of leaving university were were fantastic fun. That's awesome. Now, I actually had an Opal. That was my first car. Um, well, you are. It That's was perfect. a very teeny car, but it was a four door. <laughs> Yeah, but this my mine was a two door. They had doors like were sort of fifteen feet long because it was a coupe. Yeah. So you know you couldn't open the doors anywhere because they were so big. You could you had to sort of turn into a racing snake to be able to get in and out. Now, how did you pick that car? What made you decide to pick the Opal? I, I, I just always wanted it. It's one of those cars. You know, when I was younger, um, there were cars. I used to dream about cars. So I would dream about AC Cobras and Opal Mantas. Um, but, and I, and I, I actually, um, built a Cobra. So, um, a couple of years later, I went and bought one of these kits so you could buy a kit. So it would come in this big box. Um, and, um, you would assemble, and you know, the instruction manual was about as thick as the sort of new Testament. Um, and, 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 um, so I built this car, I built this AC Cobra replica with a, a V12 Jaguar engine. Which was out of, funny enough, one of my dad's uh, cars. So he was furious when he found out. Um, but, uh, you know, I mean, I just explained, look, this is a much better looking car. And just think the gas mileage is going to be significantly improved because it's much lighter. So that's perfect. Now, what car do you drive now? And how did you pick that car? Did you build <laughs> drive, it? <laughs> now I drive a 2008 Ford Expedition. Um, actually, no, I have two cars. I have a 2012 um, Suburban and a 2008 Expedition. Um, but I just love old cars now because, um, you know, if anything goes wrong, you can fix them. You don't have to plug them into some digital rights management supercomputer. You just hit the appropriate piece with a hammer and it normally works. Um, and, and I just love big old cars, you, you know, so I've, I've been through my phase of, um, super fast cars, um, money pits and, uh, you know, all that sort of stuff. So I've, I've done the usual list of German and Italian, um, you know, uh, you know, expensive cars, um, had huge fun with them, but I don't think I'd ever like to go back there. <laughs> go American, go American. Yes. If that's even true anymore. Cause I think all the parts are made everywhere. I don't know. Go Mexican. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So how did you go from, um, selling fax machines to insurance to now you're doing innovative real estate, uh, financing and creative things. What was that journey? Like, did you one day just say, I'm sort of sick of this. It was just a gradual progression. No, it's the, it's the opposite. Again, it's, it's all driven by this sort of real, I love building things. So, uh, and I, and I think I've always had this sort of real entrepreneurial bug although i never knew that's what it was um right. it was a sort of a restlessness um you know within a traditional work environment because i just wanted to go out and create so it's that drive to build to create stuff and um so my first um so after insurance i then moved back from Birmingham. Uh, funnily enough, I actually went and sort of lived with my parents for a, a few months, um, which was actually quite challenging. It's like, you know, you know, because having gone through that process of owning my own house and, uh, you know, I, you know, met my first wife at uh, a university and, you know, going back to my parents was a, you know, was challenging. Um, but it wasn't there for very long, but I started that. I, I, I got a job as a stockbroker. Um, so this was in, uh, 1989. Um, 
and long, long time ago. But I was broking the uh, Far East markets. So that's Hong Kong, Singapore, Malaysia, Indonesia, Philippines, and Thailand. So I would go nice. out there twice a year for this sort of three to four week trip, going around all of those countries, um, you know, meeting all these different companies. And I did that for, you know, three or four years. Um, you know, absolutely, you know, amazing experience, huge education. Um, but from there, uh, a couple of guys that I was working with spun off their own company and I went to join them. So we they sort of set up this uh, small corporate finance company. So I, I was there, um, my, my two sort of bosses were the um, the guys that created this company. And that's how we met up with, with Branson because we, one of the companies that we bought um, was Perlin Strand's balloon company. And my boss, Rory, um, wrote to Richard Branson. We had an office in Kensington High Street, which was a stone's throw away from Richard's office in Holland Park. So Rory wrote him a letter saying, I've always wanted to fly around the world in a hot air balloon. It's the last great adventure. Um, I think you would be a great pilot. Why don't we go together? You know, why don't we fly around the world in a hot air balloon? It's the last, you know, it's the last great adventure. So Richard Branson wrote back and said, dear Rory, why not? Um, wow. and so that's, so, you know, moving from, uh, you know, pitly bows to insurance, to stockbroking, to corporate finance. And suddenly I'm in the world of, you know, Virgin and Richard Branson and, um, you know, building hot air balloons to fly around the world and, you know, meeting up with this, and so we spend a number of years working closely with him after that, um, you know, with his corporate finance team. And we got involved with Virgin Clothing, Virgin uh, Cosmetics, uh, Virgin Executive Jets, uh, you know, Virgin uh, Bride, which was quite funny watching Richard wearing a, 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 a wedding dress. Um, so, yeah, anyway, yes. Sorry, very long question to very short, uh, a very, short, very long answer to a very short question. So, so after you did all that, and now you're going into this, um, you've got quantum RE, like, what was the impetus for that? Like, was it, oh, this will be a quick way to make some good money. This is actually something that people need. Um, I, it's just something, another thing to build. It's a fascinating asset class. So when I moved to the U.S. seven years ago, so in the interim, um, after, you know, in, in the late nineties, I left um, we, we sort of wound that company up. I think, you know, Virgin took over in the end. Um, so I then spent the next 20 years as a, an entrepreneur. I had my own businesses, um, you know, finance, telecoms, telecommunications, um, you know, lending. So it's very much all to do with platforms and money. So the things that I built, I was one of the early internet pioneers. We built a billing company in, uh, in 99, 2000. Uh, we were the first sort of, you know, internet billing company. So I was always fascinated by the sort of machinery of platforms and large scale applications. Now, circumstances brought me to the U.S. seven years ago. Uh, one of the first things that I did when I came here was something I'd always wanted to do, and that is get involved in what we call property in the UK or real estate. Now, real estate is this fascinating asset class that I'd always uh, been hugely interested in, but never had the opportunity or, or re never really managed to get involved in the UK. Over here, it was a, a, a an open ticket. And it was a, a um, you know, what do artists have? You know, they, they paint on a canvas, a blank canvas. That's it. Um, so right. I set up a, <laughs> I need more, more coffee required. So I set up a, um, uh, a crowdfunding company. 
mm-hmm. one of the first real estate crowdfunding companies. Um, and I met some really great real estate partners that I still work with today. And what that crowdfunding company did was allowed people to buy into real estate projects that otherwise they wouldn't have access to. So they could invest a thousand dollars here and a thousand dollars there into projects where normally you'd have to have a minimum ticket size of, of a hundred or two hundred thousand dollars. Um, while I was working on that company, I came across this incredibly interesting asset class, which was the ability to share in the equity in single family homes without having to buy the home. One of the biggest challenges with CrowdVenture was getting the deals. Every deal was different. Um, Every deal had its own sort of complications. But if we could help homeowners unlock equity and at the same time, participate in some of the upside, then it was a fantastic asset because we could tap into what was a $15 trillion asset class and we wouldn't have any of the issues of ownership. So we wouldn't have to own the homes. The homeowners own the homes, but we still managed to participate in some of the upside. Um, so it was a very early uh, idea about, this was about five or six years ago. Since then, there are a number of companies that have come into this marketplace. Contracts have evolved, which are option agreements that enable homeowners to uh, allow the investor to share in the upside in exchange for a lump sum. So that, that's how it works. It's not a loan. You have investors that say, okay, here's a lump sum. When you sell your home, if your home goes up in value, then give me my money back together with a share of the appreciation. Right. So it's that it's very different. There's no monthly payments. There's no interest. There's no added debt. It's a real lifesaver for many, many homeowners uh, because we can work with people that have a credit score of, you know, 500 and above, which is, you know, something that the banks just wouldn't even consider. Um, so it's a great product. It's very scalable. Um, and it's something that I just became fascinated with and spent, uh, years trying to figure out how we could, um, create a platform that enables homeowners to unlock equity and investors to buy into that asset class. And, and really that's what we've um, built with quantum and uh, you know, we're, we're applying blockchain technologies, we're tokenizing the assets. So there's going to be lots of really exciting announcements over the next uh, you know few months, but um, it, it was something that still fascinates me every day that the, you know, I still am hugely motivated to build this because it solves a real problem for homeowners, but also, uh, you, you know, it allows, it gives me that, um, you, you know, the, uh, it, it's the excitement of being a pioneer in such a big marketplace. And do you still think, um, real estate, whether you own it with a couple of investors or you own it on your own is still a really good place to put your money. You know, the economy is going crazy right now. Stuff is, it's, it's a little, things are upended a bit right now. Well, well, yes, but do your own research. I mean, it's a very large, complex, uh, multi-layered asset class. Real estate does not 
mean just one thing. It means a whole range of different things. It means you can lend people money, you can invest in projects, you've got residential projects, commercial projects, triple net leasing. There's layer upon layer upon layer of ways to get involved. Are you an active investor? Are you a passive investor? Are you a syndicate member? Are you a fix and flip? You know, the list goes on. Um, so yes, real estate is um, a large um, you know, asset class that is not correlated with the stock market. So if stock market goes up and down, normally the real estate is the sort of market is disconnected to that. Um, you can make some great money in real estate. You can lose a lot of money in real estate. Um, it's the same as any investment class. It, just because it's real estate and you can prod it, you know, and it's made of bricks doesn't make it any more easy um you know it's just as challenging as investing in stocks and bonds or you know or anything anything uh, in fact well since you came here about seven years ago you pro you wouldn't have been around i don't think when in the 2007 8 all that when the housing markets everybody was buying 20 properties in arizona and then everything just went completely bust yeah, I wasn't, no, but I mean, there was a global problem. So the impact, the waves, I mean, it wasn't just a U.S. issue. I mean, it was, uh, I mean, the impact, we felt that um, everywhere. And, and again, um, I was involved in, um, I think at that time, in lending. So I was in, I was a second position package lending company. So we were packaging and, and uh, um, arranging a second position or, you know, like heat, cash out refinance, that sort of thing. So our... Um, our marketplace dried up overnight. Um, so, so we were very much, uh, you know, finger on the pulse when that happened, but this is very different. So what we're doing, uh, here, I know you didn't mention it, but we're not increasing the lending. One of the biggest problems then was you had people were just massively over leveraged. You know, you had tons of debt without the underlying assets to support that. And that was the fundamentals of the problem. You know, there was, there was money was being lent uh, against a zero asset base. So of course it right. was never going to be paid back. Um, and there was never, it, you know, it was always going to, uh, you know, be a write-off. Um, you know, what we're doing is we're investing in existing equity and we are reducing the leverage. And I, I don't mean to sort of, you know, go on about it, but it just means that a homeowner potentially can use money from us to pay off their mortgage. Um, right. So it's not one of those things where we're trying to increase the lending where it's, it's the opposite. Yeah. I no, just thought that's I'd awesome. throw that in. <laughs> I appreciate it. I appreciate it. And I think this is something for a lot of people. I know, you know, sometimes people or maybe just in the U S or maybe it's just me. <laughs> no, I don't think it's me, but, uh, where, you know, I, I'd rather, I think I want to have a hundred percent of something, right? I want the whole hundred percent of the profit later on. But a lot of times, I mean, my philosophy is I'd rather have part of something than a hundred percent of nothing. Um, Do you know, you're right. That's the biggest challenge for us. It's this, uh, psychological attachment to, yeah something that may happen in the future, even though I am suffering today and cannot make my, you know, I can't pay the mortgage. I can't, you know, pay for my grocery bills yet. You know, if someone offers me the ability to unlock some potential profit, no, 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 you can't have that. That's all mine. That's you know, mine. And I've been taught that equity is sacrosanct. Do not use your home as an ATM. Never touch your equity. Uh, and again, that's, that's some of the sort of, uh, um, 
I wouldn't say it's education. That some of the the um, legacy learnings that we that that, uh, that we have to sort of unwrap and say, look, your home is an asset. Use it. Here is a way to access some of the capital without borrowing money. G- you know, g- go and invest that somewhere else. Make cash. Make make a better return, or or uh, you know, use the money to pay off your credit cards. Um, so that that is a real big challenge. You know, when you talk about money, it's uh, it's amazing the entrenched beliefs that people have that are entirely illogical. Yeah, uh, and that's I mean, I that's what I spend most of my time dealing with is these beliefs that people are holding on to that are held up as truth, and in fact, they're they're just beliefs that may or may not serve us. Do you talk with your children about money? I know they're young, four months old, but they're learning to bike. Um, do they have conversations? Yes. Well, I think what we do is we try and, um, it, it, so they have these, uh, go Henry cards. Um, so that's one thing. Um, so that's, you introduce them to the fact that, um, you know, it's, there are things you can do with money. In other words, uh, rather than just sort of stuffing all of your $2 bills that you got for your birthday present into a, you know, a, a sort of ceramic dinosaur, um, you know, I think they're, they're young. I've got my, my children, uh, are quite young. They, they range from nine years old to one and a half years old. So I've got four, four children. So, um, you know, now is the time to try and talk to them about, you know, how it works. What is money? You know, and the fact is you don't go and spend it just because you've got some numbers on your card. You know, your job is not to try and reduce that number to zero as quickly as possible. You know, it's, it's, you know, what does, you know, save it up, you know, uh, um, it's a challenge that you don't want them to end up being, you know, so tight that they never want to spend money. You just want them to be aware that, um, you know, when it's gone, it's gone. And it's actually a lot harder to make than it is to spend. Well, let me ask you this. So when, uh, so your oldest is nine. So now over here, 12, I, got, I got other children in the UK. The oldest over okay. there is like 28 or something. Well, then maybe on the other ones and, and the, the current one at nine. Do are at, at age 12, are they going to go off to boarding school? Or are you going to try and keep them around and teach them some of your perspective? What, what happens when they get to 12? Well, I, I think they would. Um, it's just very different. I mean, boarding school, um, it, it was a, you know, I would come home at weekends. So it wasn't something like you see at Hogwarts, for example. You know, it was a. <laughs> Um, but no, they're staying here. No, I'm, I'm staying as close as possible. One of the things that I love doing here, um, is working from home. I'm surrounded by, you know, lots of lovely, noisy children. Um, so I have, a, you know, ample opportunity to shout at them on a regular basis, um, uh, which, which I would miss if I send them to, to boarding school. Um, and yeah, it's, it's kind of different over here. You, I just want them to be close. I want them to, they, they pick up stuff from you anyway. There's a lot of stuff you yeah. teach them, but there's a lot of stuff that they just, through this process of osmosis, they pick up from you, um, from, you know, from your attitude and how you speak and what you do and, you know, the, the excitement that you feel rubs off on them. So, um, I, you know, I, I, I do fear for them, poor things. <laughs> <laughs> I think they'll make it. Let, let me ask you this. Do you, how often do you review your money? How often do you take a look at a budget or just look at the numbers, check the banking account? Do you do that on a regular basis? Yeah, no. Yeah, very much so. Yes. Um, 
on a number of different levels, on a personal level, on a business level, I can tell you exactly how much money um, I have in every account, business, personal, IRA. Um, I know what the budget is, what we're going to spend, how much cash we've got, um, you know, how long it's going to last. So that means that every decision I make, I know where that fits in. Um, and the reason for that is I have run out of money in the past several times. Um, and I never want to be in that position again because it is incredibly debilitating. You cannot, it's like having your legs tied together. Um, when you're in that position, it's incredibly difficult to get out of it. Um, you're in a position of weakness. You cannot negotiate it in a position of weakness. Um, so, um, all of the things that we do when we have capital, that's when we go and, you know, that's when we get our lines of credit set up. That's when we get our, um, you know, that's when we build the relationships with the banks when the capital's there. Because, you know, when we don't need the money, that's when they offer it. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I do keep a very, very close uh, uh, rein on everything, but not, not to the point where, you know, we, we don't, we don't spend anything, but we just, you just need to know where everything is. Absolutely. Just an awareness. Let me ask you this. What would you say to people? And I've been there, um, to people where they're in that place where there is no money right now. Um, and it feels like you won't get out of that situation, right? It's really incredibly humiliating, painful, uh, shameful, and you're just not in a position to, to negotiate. Like you said, what would you say to people out there that are feeling like they're in that situation? Well, I can tell you from a position of experience. So I've had companies, um, you know, in, in 08, I had my, my lending company went bankrupt. You know, we just lost all of our business overnight. Um, and we were doing really well until we weren't. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And, um, again, moving over here to the U S, um, you know, going through a, uh, you know, that sort of change and the divorce and, you know, it's, you're moving to another country where you have very little is actually quite challenging. So, you know, I, I can say this from a position of having been in that position where you do wake up at three o'clock in the morning thinking, how the hell am I going to get to the end of the month? How I have no idea. And the answer is you always find a way. So that's it. So the answer is, uh, you know, everything is transitory. Everything changes. Everything passes. Um, you are in control. And it sounds terribly trite, but you really are in control. It's all about whether you want to go deeper or if you want to get out of it. There is always a way. And the other piece of that answer is the way out is staring you in the face. You just can't see it. And that's it. So the answer is, it's there. It's right in front of you. It's obvious. It's slapping you in the face saying, this is the answer. But for some reason, you're looking somewhere else. So the moment you learn to get out of your own way, as it were, and see yeah. what the what the answers are, it, you know, and the more you sweat it, um, what do they say? Fear is a temporary lack of information. You know, yeah. you might be afraid of all this stuff. You just, you know, so, so it will pass, but it's up to you. You can, you got yourself into it. You can get yourself out of it just as easy. Yeah. I was just reading, uh, rereading the book presence and they talk about actually looking for the looking at the solutions instead of looking at the problems focusing on the solutions and not the problems because most of us are like oh my god there's no money in the bank oh my god this is gonna and just letting go of that and and 
looking at it from a different perspective. It, it is it is entirely that, and I've I've learned that you know the world just exists between your ears, basically. You know, it's it is you decide what your reality is going to be. Um, and if you decide that you, you're going to get out of this problem, then what happens is you will get out of it. You know, it's, it is as easy as that. It is as, as subjective as that, but you are completely in control of what happens. Um, yeah. you know, again, it sounds crazy, but it's not, it, it's not. If you decide that you're going to solve this problem, then you will solve the problem. It is inevitable that you will solve the problem. Yeah just a matter of when. So <laughs> exactly, exactly. That's it. Yeah. So Matthew, we're at our fast five. I'm going to ask you some questions, just top of the mind, um, that comes to you. Um, what is one thing you never spent mind spending money on tools? <laughs> you can never have enough wrenches. <laughs> there you go. Exactly. I, yeah, duplicated many times. How did your purchasing habits change during the pandemic? I think really I having been through a number of uh financial crises um it was I, I tell you what I I sold all my shares um which I really shouldn't have done because <laughs> I just wanted cash so yeah. um uh, that was a great you know sorry yeah I you know really shouldn't have done that actually but again I don't beat myself up because if it had gone the other way um you know that I wish I had so so I just became very conservative so you just um you just held back didn't know what it was hold on to the stuff that you've got um and just you know just be conservative and and sort of slow just see what happens um so really you know very aware of uh, changing that any everything and anything could change yeah absolutely what emoji best describes your relationship with money i think just fun just just uh i you know it's uh i know that i can make money and i think it's taken me years to have that confidence so it doesn't scare me i've i haven't worked for someone for you know 25 plus years um i've always been able to you know make money and support a large family and and you know it's been incredibly challenging all the time um but you know it's uh, it, it doesn't scare me. I'm not, I'm not obsessed by money. I don't want to make huge amounts of money because I know that that's a, um, you know, that's a road to emptiness. You know, once you make the money, so, well, you know, what do we do now? So it's a, it's tall, it's fun. It's a way to get, it's, it's, it's a mechanism for enjoyment. We, we bought a, uh, an RV recently, which is something I've always wanted to do. So, you know, it's a way of, of buying experiences of, uh, what do they say? It's, um, the most important thing is value for memory, not value for money. So it's a, Absolutely. it's a mechanism to create, you know, experience and fun and memories. What's one thing you would never spend money on again if you didn't have to? I don't know, really. I don't know. Cause all the things I swore I'd never buy again, I always do. Um, one of the biggest challenges for me is, is investing in stock markets. And this is like a roundabout answer because I'm quite emotionally driven in terms of my decisions, in, in, you know, sometimes. So if I buy something which is outside of my control, like a stock, and then the next day the stock goes down, I think, God, I've got to sell. It's, it's going to crash. So, um, 
I, I, you know, I'm not a very good investor in things that I'm not in control of. Um, so, uh, I, you know, and any investment I do now is very conservative. So I'll only buy into, uh, you know, asset back things. I won't buy any, anything that's sort of got this sort of super high alpha. Um, so really having, um, I, I hope this is answering your question. Having bought very speculative investments before, I will never do that again. Okay. <laughs> and, and if you had, if you had to work, but you didn't need money, what would you do? I think I'd fly. If I had to work, I would, I would, I just love flying. I haven't flown for quite a while, but I would just love to, um, I just love the excitement of flying helicopters because there is, you know, there's so much concentration involved so many moving parts so many things so much excitement every day is this sort of uh i think that's the thing i would do something where every day is different um uh you know it's where where you have that challenge where you never find yourself in a position where every day is just the same thing over and over again we are at our sweet spot moment our m&m moment money and motivation what is a practical piece of advice or a piece of wealth wisdom you can offer our listeners you know, they, um, when we talk about investing, and again, I was thinking about this when you mentioned this, you know, earlier on, uh, treat invest, investing like a job. A lot of people who get involved in active investing, um, don't do anything like the amount of research or work that is necessary to be successful. Uh, and if you don't do that, then you won't be successful unless you're incredibly lucky, which can be quite irritating. Um, <laughs> God, how did you do that? You know, um, so, and, and again, so if you're, when we talk about real estate investing as well, we touched on it earlier, people uh, tend to assume because it's real estate, it will automatically make money. But I would just say that treat investing like a job, you know, do the research, do the work, yep. think about what happens here. What are the risks? What, what, what can go wrong? Um, don't just sort of leap in and then, uh, you know, take your time, meet people, talk to them, find out what their experiences are. Um, and then, then make the investment. Um, because there are so many people that I know, myself included, who have lost money where you didn't need to, if only you'd done that little bit more research. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's a big piece of what I was hearing today is do the research, check things out, whether it's real estate, whether it's money, um, is just do your homework. Um, and I'm also hearing, uh, that, uh, like our situations are temporary. So, uh, whatever that situation is, keep moving forward. It'll eventually work itself out. People are resilient. And, uh, so I think there's that mindset that even if you didn't name it is there's a positivity about it's all just going to work out. And that even when you've made emotional choices that didn't serve you, you didn't beat yourself up. Even if it drove you crazy, you just went, okay, well, let's, let's go from here. Exactly right. You have to take um, each day. You can't allow yourself just to, you know, go through decisions that you've made in the past over and over again, churning through them, you know, every night, you, you know, you've got to, you know, it is entirely up to you. And positivity is one of those words that is used over and over again. So it's, it's, it's meaning has decayed and been diluted, but it, it is that in other words, you have the choice of how you, you know, what you do today. And again, 
I don't want to sound like some sort of third-rate novelist, but but it's it is that you can either decide to sit back and do nothing, and then let the the, the bow wave of life wash over you, and you know you become the flotsam and jetsam like uh, you know like like everyone else, or you can just drive forwards, and it takes time, you know, it takes effort to do that. But at the end of the day, you can say, I've done something today. Every day, I've, you know, you've got to be able to say, I've achieved something. I've done something. I've moved it forward. Uh, even if it's a little bit, you know, then, you know, then that's, that's all you need to do. Absolutely. Move it forward. Where can people find you on social media and online? Uh, well, the, the best place actually is, is, um, uh, the company Quantum RE. And we've got, uh, you know, contact details and, um, you know, everything about us is there. So that's, you know, quantumre.com. I mean, we, we have, uh, it's not just me, there's, you know, all of us there. So, uh, I think that's probably the, the, uh, the easiest place to reach me. We'll have people track you down and uh, stalk you. <laughs> please do, yes. <laughs> please do. Uh, well, to our listeners, please don't forget to share the love. Like, follow, and share on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Search for Money You Should Ask, all one word. Follow this podcast on your favorite podcast player or visit Spotify and search for Money You Should Ask or click on the link in the description. If you're watching this episode on YouTube, don't forget to like, comment, and subscribe. For more tips and tools or how to learn how to healthy, have a healthy relationship with money, check out themoneynerve.com. That's nerve, not nerd. Uh, <laughs> Matthew, it's been awesome having you on the show. I appreciate your time and wish Go you well. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure.